Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the leaders of Israel are doing with their idols in dark rooms? And I find that interesting because there is like a disconnect of, um, you know, of, of us hiding out in rooms and being in dark areas. And there's something about that, drawing the curtains and, um, you know, uh, shutting the door, um, all, the, all those kind of things that we do, right? We've done. And, um, you know, and there's that, there's that ignorance there. Even though we know God's maybe around or there, there's still an ignorance that Israel has, especially the leaders, right, where Israel... They're saying, son of man, have you seen what the leaders are doing in their idols in dark room? They are saying the Lord doesn't see us. He has deserted our land. They've kind of looked around, and instead of seeing the hand of the Lord in Israel's life as a nation, they kind of have, they kind of have uh, just not been able to see the hands of, of the Lord anymore. They've disconnected themselves from God in a way where... Um, you know, they could easily now logically just move into places where they just say, oh, the Lord's not really concerned with this. You know, I could do it in a secret place and the Lord doesn't see it or doesn't, you know, there's not much conviction there. You get the sense of there's not much conviction there. And, you know, obviously that's why God had to raise up Ezekiel, right? Is to, to be the spokesperson and say, yo, hey, pay attention. But, um, you know, there's things always happening in our life. Um, you know that I guess my point is is that it's not something that usually just happens it's usually something that's very subtle you know like in the people of Israel where you know they're not seeing the hands of God they're not really looking at the hand of God in the nation Um, and then they just slowly start moving into an individual you know life without God Though it's still around the things of God, it's not like they're totally absent from the things of God. You know, there's things around them, but there's not really a, um, like a real conscience, like the Lord's here, you know? And of course, if the Lord was right there, you wouldn't masturbate, you know? I mean, that would be a fact, right? If the Lord was hanging out in your house at, you know, 10 at night or two in the morning, you know, you just wouldn't do it. You know, you'd wake up, you'd get your glass of water, you'd see Jesus there. Jesus would say, hey, how's it going, Mo? And I'd be like, hey, good, you know? And, dude, any idea of watching porn would be right out of the, right, right out of the mind. And, and we would just be like, boom, right back to the bedroom. Later, Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. But isn't that weird how when you think of it that way, I mean, I mean, that's how, that's how, that's how distant we get from that kind of idea is where we just don't even think that way. We don't think like, you know, we think mentally like, oh, yeah, God sees me. He knows. You know, I, uh, me and Bo also talk a lot about this idea of idols in dark rooms where there's, there's like a, a theological or spiritual concept of darkness versus light. You know, the idea of being in the darkness means that you're living outside of accountability. You're not being vulnerable. You're not being transparent. There's a lot of deception in your life. There's a lot of trickery, uh, manipulation, things like that. Uh, but there's also, you know, we also talk about the idea that this is 
very literal as well. Um, it's it's interesting, you know, that, that passage in the Bible where it says those who get drunk get drunk at night. You know, yeah. <laughs> what is who, it, Thessalonians? Yeah, I think it's the Thessalonians where he talks about like the day approaching. Yeah. And he says those who get drunk get drunk at night. There's like a literal part that, and like for me, like when I would look at the times where I viewed porn, it was almost always. What's up, John? Sorry, you're hey, okay, okay, man. John. <laughs> Six o'clock. Hey, man, better late than never. You know, only 15 minutes late. But, you know, like for me, the majority of times where I would view pornography or, or masturbate, it was almost always at night. And it was almost always after a certain time of day that it would happen. So for me, going to bed, like having a weirdly having a bedtime was actually like a huge transition for me in this fight. Um, also just the idea of, you know, like Bo talked about making the room dark, like pulling the curtains and things like that. A lot of the guys that we've had in the group, they, you know, they'll, they'll pull the doors off their room or they'll, you know, take down the curtains so that they can't do that anymore. Just like little things like that are actually really effective. Yeah. You know? There's good practical things to do. You know, if you, especially if you struggle in a room or something like that, you know, to, to do, have you guys done anything like that before? rip the door off or, or maybe, uh, you know, make sure you don't have curtains so that things are, everything's visible. Have you ever done that? Or maybe gone to bed at a reasonable time where you thought, Hey, you know what? You know, my battle is really from 10 at night till, you know, two in the morning. And, and I would say dominantly, that's probably the case. I would say young people struggle a lot in the morning because of their testosterone levels. So a lot of young people will wake up with an erection, and so they might, you know, move in a direction. Um, as you get older, that might not happen as much. So sometimes, um, you know, the nighttime becomes the right time, you know, for, for that kind of behavior. Um, um, so uh, that's what I've kind of seen pattern-wise. But if you can, you know, a lot of us, if we could win from 10 at night to two in the morning, you win. You know, that's how I always kind of try to, I try to think of it that way. Um, you know, because a lot of times, do my wife cannot be home during the day. And it doesn't mean I never have self-gratified or watched porn when she's gone. I don't want to say that. But I will say it's a lot, it's been a lot, 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 lot less. Even, even when it's just daytime. You know, for some reason, there's something about the darkness. And the people of Ezekiel's day, the leadership, did it. And I, I, didn't, I don't like that statement where they say the Lord doesn't see us. He has deserted our land. It's just such a, oh, such a sad position to be in, right? Where you almost like give up. You're almost just like, oh, whatever. You know, I'm just going to keep going, doing my thing. Yeah, well, Israel... Israel was being judged. Yeah, well, they were being judged. They were being taken in. They, they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Ezekiel was part of that. One of the one of the uh, the sacking of Israel, if you will, of Jerusalem and all that. And uh, and it, when Ezekiel's prophesying, he's basically given a revelation by God into reasons why um, they were being brought into captivity and the evil of the leadership of the day. And um, so it was a tough message because it was a lot of like, you know, look to the south of the temple. This is how the revelations were. Look to the north of the temple. Look inside it. See what's going on. They're worshiping Tammuz. You know, they're worshiping one of the false deities. You know, check out what they're doing, you know. And it was, 
And uh, in a sense, Ezekiel was exposing to the captive Israelites um, just spiritually where their leadership was at, you know. You know, and the interesting thing is it's, it's not super common, but I've seen it where some people will look at God and they'll actually indulge in this sin out of kind of a frustration with God where they're like, you know, if God really cared, why wouldn't he just take this sin away from me? You know, like, why do I still struggle? And they get like upset and they have almost that idea of like the Lord has deserted the land, you know, like God's obviously not helping me. So why should I fight? Or, you know, some guys going through like a nasty divorce or issues in marriage. They're just like, gosh, you know, like, why isn't the Lord taking care of this? Why isn't he helping me out? And out of that frustration comes sexual sin, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, um, have any of you guys felt that way, struggled in that way? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty uh, interesting how our mind goes that way. You know, and it's, it's all different for everybody. For some guys, I'll talk to them and they'll say it's like, a, I don't want to say it's like a cop-out, but it's more like, their mind's made up, meaning they already want to do this, and so they use their frustration as a justification. But other guys, it really is just straight up like frustration. It's just, man, what the heck is going on? So I guess I could ask you guys this question because I, I think it's a good one. Why do you think God doesn't just take away the temptation? That, that is one reason. You know, the passage you're referring to is actually in the book of Judges. And God straight up says, because the people of Israel are wondering, like, if you've given us the land, right, when they were coming into the land uh, in the book of Joshua as well as in uh, the book of Judges, if we're coming into the land, you're giving it to us, why don't you just send a plague out or something? You know, why don't you give all the Canaanites some sort of a disease and they all die or just vaporize them or send a comet? You know, like, why do we have to fight them? And one of the things that God said to them is he's like, you don't know how to fight because they were coming from slavery, captivity. They weren't warriors. And he's like, if you're going to hold this land, you know, it's not, it's not the have-nots that you got to worry. It's the, it's the haves, you know. So if you're going to have a land that's prosperous, people are going to want to take it from you. And if you don't know how to fight, you're not going to be able to hold the land. And we could apply that spiritually to us, where like Tony is saying, that it's teaching us how to fight, how to combat things. It's developing self-control in us. It's developing patience. It's developing reliance on God and the Holy Spirit, which are really important uh, facets of the Christian life, not just for fighting sin, but for also the positive things that God wants to do in us, uh, right? We talk about how one of the big facets of love is self-control, patience, long-suffering, things like that. Um, it's important to understand things like that for relationships. It's also important to understand those things for even just like combating the world in the sense of evangelizing and behavior in that realm so i like deuteronomy 8 3 it says uh, this is talking again about the wandering in the wilderness it says so he humbled you god humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that god might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the lord and I like that. You know, God will make me starve. He's sovereign. He'll make me go through the lean time. You know, he'll, he'll make, you know, let me go my direction. You know, why? So that I learn that I don't live on sex alone. 
you know, I hate to put it that way, but, but man does not live by sex alone, right? The orgasm's not the goal of everything in my life. This is not the fix-all, be-all of my world as a man. Um, that's hard for us to grab because as men, that's usually been the, the thing that has been preached to us in our world from day one. And, um, but now, you know, I'm learning how to lean on the word of God. You know, there's a goalie from Canada back in the 70s and 80s from the Montreal Canadiens, won many Stanley Cups, Ken Dryden. And uh, he said, without temptation, we are all unbreakingly strong. And that's true. Without temptation, we're all super duper strong. You know, if you have no temptation in your life, no, none of it at all, then of course you're going to be a strong person, you know. But there's something that you learn, you know, like Peter was talking about in the midst of the trial. And, you know, and I think when I look at it all, I'm glad that God has me on this short leash. I mean, I'm glad God has me. I mean, it, it, it moves me to read the word. It moves me to pray. It moves me to seek the Lord. It moves me to realizing that I'm not all that in a bag of chips, that I'm not this great Christian guy, that I'm not some amazing pastor. I mean, I mean, it, it really has humbled me to where I'm just, I know I'm frail and uh, have feet made of clay. And uh, man, I am not going to judge if someone comes up to me today and says, man, I've committed adultery, I'm you know, watching blah, 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 I'm going to be the last person that's going <laughs> to throw a stone at them, man. I'm going to give them a big hug, tell them I love them, tell them that, hey, I struggle too with lustful inclinations, um, you know, and, and so I see God working in all that, you know, um, developing that in my life. Um, though there's a lot of tough things and I know in a marriage you always go you always think like man that that sounds ridiculous like you know if I didn't have this things would be great and I don't think that's true you know I, I think if we delve down deep and we drill down enough then we're going to find that there's a lot of issues in marriages this is one of them but if, if I know how the Lord works, he's using this in your guys' life to bring up a lot of the yuck in the marriage that maybe has been there for a long period of time on many different subjects and issues. And now you're starting to learn humility. Now you're learning how to walk openly and l learning how to be honest with your spouse and uh, learning so many different things that maybe you've never done before and and she never done before either or maybe she was worshiping you and she thought you were the god and and when you failed her life failed and she was so let down and things like that and maybe that's a lesson that god is teaching her in this as well and i we've known many wives that have had to learn hard lessons very difficult lessons that way too um so, you know, but remember what it says. He humbled you. He allowed you to hunger, right? You know, the Lord allowed them to hunger so that they would learn something in it, you know. 
So God creates a leanness in us so that we learn to lean on the Lord. And we haven't done a good job of that. We have, instead of leaning on the Lord, we have turned to idols. We've turned to other things. Um, and yet the Lord's faithful to continue to move us back to uh, the, the lesson at hand, if you will, you know. Do you guys have any other thoughts about why God would leave this in our life? And that, and that might be what, it, what the real answer is in Ezekiel 8.12, is they're in a place of flourishing, in a place of, you know, um, you know the priests are t- well taken care of, if you will, and they get laxed. You know, and I know for certain that's me. I mean, I have a house, I have a car, I have a couple cars. Um, you know, I have things, and and when you get that way, you can get relaxed. You know, um, you know when I had, and this is how, uh, you know, the, if you will, the topography. That's not the right word, but the topography on pornography. What's it's like the demographics of pornography. It's kind of interesting when you see how like the highest usage of people. It's not only the youngest, the younger people that view it most, but it's also the people that are around 42 to around 52, you know, and you see those two demographics are the biggies. And you look at, well, what is it about that demographic? And I just got to say, it's probably that they, you know, they, they feeling pretty good about, you know, the younger people are sitting in their houses, you know, and they have access. So they're on it all the time. And then you have, and I know he told you about some stats about 15 billion people watching um, last week, which is true, uh, a year, annually, 15 billion. Like, that's more than the population of the earth times <laughs> a few. So that's how many people visit just one. And that stat's just on one site. Yeah, but uh, m- my point was is that the other demographic is when you're 42, 40, f- 52, you also are kind of in this place in life where you've kind of, you know, you went through the 20s. You went Financially through. Financially secure by then, Yeah, so you start getting into that relaxed mode, you know, where in the 20s and 30s, man, it's not so crazy. My, my porn experience in my 40s has been way stronger than in my 30s. And I'm like, just getting out, starting to get out of my 40s. I'm going into my 50s, and I'm kind of stoked. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm looking forward to the 50s. Hopefully it's, you know, it's going to be a better 50s, you know, than 40s. Yeah, there's an interesting concept in the Bible, in the book of James, uh, chapter 1, I think it's verse 12, where it says, Blessed is the man when he endures temptation, for when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life. As to all those who love the glorious appearing of, our, of God, basically. And that passage seems to insinuate that temptation produces adoration towards God and glory. And uh, it's really one of those ones that we have to kind of ponder. We have to think through, like, well, how is that possible? And uh, the way that me and my wife talk about it is I say, like, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if the second you got married, all sexual attraction for everybody except for your spouse just shut off? Like, literally, you only wanted your spouse, and no one else appealed to you. No one else was attractive. I was like, wouldn't that be, like, an interesting thing? And um, over time, as we talked about it, we would just be like, well, yeah, but then there would be no choice. Meaning, if people ask me, like, why are you with your wife? I'm like, well, everyone else looks hideous to me. 
right? She's the only one that's attractive in the entire world. Like, of course I'm with my wife. It, it removes the capacity of what we call choice. When you have a struggle, when you have a temptation towards somebody else or something else, and you still choose your wife, it glorifies her. Does that make sense? It makes her more appealing or attractive. It makes her seem better because you could go a different direction and you're still choosing not to. Temptation produces that in us as well, where we don't go after God because he's the only option. You know, it'd be great if the second you became a Christian, the only things that appealed to you were the things of God. But then you would be doing them because that's the only choice. That's all you could do, right? The decision that you have in the here and now brings glory to God, which is, which is interesting. Now, there, there are several other reasons of why God does it. I'm not going to get into them tonight, but it's something maybe to just ponder, to think over in your own uh, free time. But one thing that I will point out is that everything that we're talking about right now is what we would call God taking something that's bad and turning it into a good. It's not something that God creates in order to do something for us, right? And this is what I mean by that. Temptation is a necessary part of our existence on this earth. So God uses temptation in order to benefit us. But there was a guy who was born on this planet that didn't need any of the blessings that we just talked about. His name was Jesus. It's perfect. He didn't need to learn reliance on God. He didn't learn, need to learn how to trust in God. He didn't need to know that uh, God is the source of all of his needs and everything like that. Yet he was tempted. Why was he tempted? Well, it's because temptation is a part of living in a fallen existence. We're born in iniquity. That's what the Bible says, that there's an inherent bentness to our character. And that bentness pulls from God. And because it's a part of your nature, being here on this earth, God cannot take temptation away from you uh, aside from actually putting you in your final body, which would be your resurrected form. As long as we live in this fallen body, we're going to have an inherent bentness that pulls away from God. Does that make sense? And this is what it means that Jesus was tempted yet without sin. It doesn't mean that Jesus was sinning. What it means is that Jesus, because he became man, he inherited the corruption of the flesh. Does that make sense? He, inherited, he took it on in an intent to crucify it. But because of that, he had a nature that wanted to pull from God. right? So And to change it. And to change it. Change right? the nature. That's right. And Jesus... Because he took on that nature, he had the capacity to change the nature through the resurrection. So temptation has these benefits, is all I'm saying. Like it has these amazing benefits that God can pull from it. But at the bottom of it, that's not why you're being tempted. You're being tempted because you're in a fallen state. Does that make sense? Adam and Eve, how do I put this? It says... In Genesis, that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Did you know when we go to heaven, we're not naked? Right? When we go to heaven, we're wearing robes of righteousness. So the question is, is, if God is just trying to bring us back to Eden, why don't we just go back to a naked state, just like Adam and Eve? Why does God change us? Beyond that, there were different things about Adam and Eve. For instance, they could have sex and, and uh, re reproduce. We, we're not going to be able to reproduce in heaven. We know that. So the question is, is like, are we really going back to Eden or are we going beyond it? And the answer is we're going beyond it. So Adam and Eve were, if you want to think of it this way, they were, they were a blank slate. They hadn't actually chosen to be good. 
they were in a state where by nature they were good because they were reliant upon God, but they hadn't actually chosen to be good in the same way that you and I have chosen God. Does that make sense? They never put their faith in God. Yeah, if you want to think of it that way, yeah. So they, they had a they had a free will just like yours and ours. The difference was they didn't have an inherent bend from God. Yeah, Meaning because the, the, curse the curse hadn't happened yet. So there was no inherent bend from God, yet they had a nature that could be tempted. Right? And they were. And they were. <laughs> when we're in heaven, we know that temptation will no longer be a thing. Right. Yeah, and, and it kind of this kind of helps me out anyway in a simplistic mind, my my simplistic brain on it all, is is that we get the idea that when we are in a glorified body with the Lord, we really are completed. There's really a fullness, a completeness with us. No more lack, n- nothing. No more sin. No more tears. No more even capacity. You you don't see any passage that would make you think like, oh, even in the resurrected body, you're going to sin or things of that nature. Uh, so God is bringing us up to a level uh, through the Messiah that is one of an inheritor of everything that the Messiah inherits. And, uh, and we receive the glory which the Messiah receives. And so it's an exaltation that really goes beyond what Adam and Eve experienced because they experienced something of a different sort. And um, and Pascal says it this way, is that we just, we can't understand exactly what the nature of Adam and Eve quite was. Um, so many people, theologians, have thought of, tried to think about this subject before. Because, because the nature itself was different. It, it's just the, the situation was different. Um, but it makes sense in my mind to understand the difference between Adam and Eve and where we're going and what we're going to be doing just in the idea that Adam and Eve could sin and we will not sin. Um, we will no longer have the corruption. What Christ came to do is enter into death itself to change the very nature of death to life. So the very body itself that is a de- dying body, he, he inherited a body like yours so that he could change the nature. Right now your nature is to die. That's the nature of the body. But he came in to alter that nat- nature by literally touching death within the body. And when God touches death within the body, God is life. And so he creates life. And so, you know, obviously our resurrected bodies are going to be far different from Adam and Eve. Um, And so in that way, you know, it's hard to uh, contemplate exactly what Adam and Eve, how that all kind of comes about, how it uh, and how it all works. But we definitely know that our future is a such a glorious higher one than even that yeah. which in and of itself can bring about a lot of joy and that's another reason why temptation exists where you know if we had a, a perfect existence and romans 8 kind of hints at this where he says that god subjected the creation to futility and hope where if we had a, a creation of god had the earth be a place where there was no temptation or suffering of any sort then no pain or anything like that. But there was one difference that God wasn't, you didn't have an inherent relationship with God. 
God did that, it would be much easier to become complacent and lose sight of what's really valuable and important with your life, and that is to pursue God. So God implants into his creation a suffering to excite us for heaven, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you get that from Romans chapter 8. Everything was subjected um, in hope. So if you look at Romans chapter 8, um, there's that glorious passage. Let me read it since we're on this heavy topic right now. Um, it's not one to take really lightly because it's uh, very theological and, and kind of deep. But um, uh, it says, For the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, right? So he says, We know that the whole creation groans with labors and birth pains. This is what we're talking about. The trials, right? Not only that, but we also... Us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we even ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption and redemption of our body. Why? Because we're dying. We're suffering. Got cancer. Sick. Right? Tempted. Struggling. Right? Weak. And he, But before that, he says, no, so that's what his, he's talking about, right? For we hope not for what we see, but we wait with perseverance, Right? The Spirit also helps us, right? Um, but before that, he says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God, what we shall be. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's a heavy passage. That's not a light theological sentence there. So the whole creation's waiting for something we're going to be. This is going to be awesome. So God subjected the creation to futility in hope of the redemption of the sons of God, which is us. So, in other words, when we fell, what happened was God subject had already subjected the earth to us. He had given us rulership over the creation. Does that make sense? So he looked at mankind. He said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth right? This was the idea that we had authority over the creation because God gave it to us. So when we fell, the creation fell with us. When we're redeemed, the creation's redeemed with us. Does that make sense? So God inserted, he, he put like a virus, <laughs> if you want to think of it, like a computer virus that infected the creation, and he did it in hope that as we looked at the creation, and we looked at what was wrong with it, it would be a metaphor with what's wrong with us. Now, Jesus really lays this on heavy when he does healings. The one that the heaviest time he says this is when he heals the man who's a quadriplegic. Uh, in Mark chapter 2, it's also in Luke and Matthew, but you guys probably know the story where they unearth the thatching on, on Peter's mother-in-law's house. They drop this guy down. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody kind of freaks out because they're like, who has the right to forgive sins but God? And Jesus says, what's easier to say? Pick up your pallet and walk or your sins are forgiven, but that you may know that the Son of God has power to forgive even sins on this earth. Take up your pallet and walk. Now, this is what Jesus is saying. In his healing ministry, he's saying that the futility, the, 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 the struggle that that guy had, which was what? His quadriplegia was a symbol, it was a metaphor for something that was even worse that was wrong with him. What was even worse? His sin. And Jesus 
cures the sin and says, this is what's really wrong with you. And then he cures the paralysis to show him that I have the power to do this, but it also shows you I have the power to do something more important, which is to deal with your sin issue. That's what Jesus always was trying to show people in his healing ministry of everything that was wrong with people in the infirmed way was a symbol, it was a metaphor of something that was worse with them, which is their spiritual state. Does that make sense? So that's what Paul's getting at. He's pulling that, the, the rabbi Paul is pulling that from the teachings of Jesus and the Old Testament, and he's saying this is why God created, uh, allowed the creation to fall and to be subjected to futility, to temptation, to trial, so that we might know that there's something wrong with the creation and yearn for God to correct it. Does that make sense? That's why the creation is the way it is. It's why you and I struggle the way we do in the various ways that we do. It's a, it's a product of God trying to bring the creation back to its intended point. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and in it he said, God whispers in our lives but he shouts in our pain. Mm -hmm. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is what he's talking about. He's saying that God is utilizing futility in hope that you'll listen to what he's saying and come back to redemption, which is the intent, right? Yeah, and we all can kind of relate to the groaning part, right? of being in a fallen body and in a body that struggles with temptation and the groaning that's a part of that. And because mankind is made in the image of God, you know, everything is, in a sense, bowed down to, to us. Um, and that's what you get in Romans 8. Everything, in a sense, is um, waiting for us. Isn't that amazing? That's what it says. They, the expectation of the creation eagerly waits. It's eagerly waiting for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. For us. For us to come to him. And the whole, redeemed. to be redeemed. Yep. That's right. The further re redeeming of our bodies. And this is what he's talking about. Um, um, he, those he predestined, he's also glorified. You know, who can separate us from the, uh, the love of God? Who can separate us from Jesus Christ? All the trials you guys go through, all the temptations you go through. Don't you know your position in the universe, he says, man? You're, you're made in the image of God. You are the central figure to the whole creation. The whole creation's waiting for you. I mean, man, it's like, whoo, that's, that's intense, you so know? And, and the picture that, that Paul is using, which is so cool, is you remember I said that it's almost like God implanted a virus into the creation when we fell? Now he's implanted the cure. And the weird thing is, this is why theologians have called it the good infection, where the way that the cure works is actually like a virus. It spreads. Does that make sense? And is contagious. And so what he's saying is that God has implanted the cure in us. Did you guys catch from that passage what the cure is? The Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit. That's why he says the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. So he implants the Holy Spirit into our lives, and that's the cure, and it's infecting us. So, so picture this for a second. Imagine that there was someone so healthy that if you touched them, their health was infectious. 
right? So if someone was sick and they went up to someone who, who was healthy just by touching this person, they would become healthy, right? Now that doesn't exist because we're all in a fallen state, but Jesus was like that. Does that make sense? That's why people were healed when they came in contact with him. Jesus was so full of life. He was so full of life that his life was contagious. Isn't that weird? So people were catching health from Jesus when they came in contact with him. Uh, almost like a virus, but it was like a good virus. And then he takes, what was it about Jesus that was doing it? The Holy Spirit. Jesus takes the Holy Spirit that was in him and he puts it in us. And now we're being, our bodies are being taken over, basically. We're becoming infected with God's righteousness and we're becoming like him. And then from us, the world's being infected. Does that make sense? So we're actually so contagious that the entire world, the entire universe will catch this virus and be redeemed, right? But it's a good virus. So you got to think of it like, like a virus, but it's a good virus, a virus that's bringing health and well-being to everything around it. Yeah, it's interesting, but, you know, Romans 8, the whole context is for, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So what he's trying to, what he's doing is giving us hope, right? Hope in your suffering, hope in the trial, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and sometimes we can give up on that hope easily th- because we fail in temptation, um, sometimes we can easily go, man, I'm, you know, I struggle some more. And we can lose out on, on the big picture of what God's doing in our life. You know, that there is a greater grandioso plan that is Paul's trying to help everybody understand how beautiful this thing is. You know, that this thing is absolutely gorgeous. Um, can you... You know, because when you talk about it just a little bit, you think, how could a God move us in, and, and put us in such a beautiful place of importance and, and help us in, and, and, you know, and, and, and um, give us such an exalted position? You know, uh, what kind of loving God do we serve? I mean, just a super duper loving uh, creator, you know, to do this. And, you know, that's a good motivator, you know, when you when you read that to go, hey, I'm going to get back up and and I'm going to work on this and I'm going to fight and I'm not going to give up. And there's no reason to give up because God hasn't given up on me, man. He's got me at the center uh, of everything. You know, that's how he thinks of me. I'm made in the image of God. You know, he, he, I'm that important. And, uh, you know, the devil would love to whisper in our ear and go, man, you're not important. You're not. You know, you're no longer good for the kingdom, and look at you. You're not like a king's kid, and you're, you're horrible. Look what you've done. Yeah, dude, uh, let me just break it down for you. Even if you didn't have a porn problem or, you know, anything like that, you fail miserably, just to be honest with all of you. Miserably. Every area. You name any area of your life, and if we pick it apart according to the word of God— in the perfection of the the law of God, the holiness of God, you are an utter, 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 utter failure. There is no hope in your good works, none whatsoever. Not one good work you do is not tainted without some thing of yuck that's in it. And you think you're doing the right thing, you ain't doing the right thing, not like Jesus. 
And that's the crazy thing, is when you really get down to the holiness of God and who God is and what God's like and his character, I don't, no one's going to stand before him and be able to boast in the slightest of anything good that they do. Not one person. You know, and I definitely um, have a realistic view of myself, you know, it, meaning in the sense that I know that even the good moments in my life that I think I'm good, there's a reality where I know that, man, I am so off in the heart, in the mind. All I can do, I think of myself way too much. Um, I, I don't know how to glorify God like Jesus did. I don't know how to have my thoughts perfectly like Jesus did on the Father. Um, I don't, how to, don't know how to not worry like Jesus told us not to worry. He said, don't worry about your life. Can you even grab what that means? Don't worry about your life. How many of us worry about our life every day? Yeah, if you worry about your life once in a day, you sin. I don't know how anybody can walk the planet as a Christian and not be poor in spirit and not think of themselves as in desperate need of a loving Savior. I mean, I don't know where Christian cockiness comes in, but <laughs> it blows my mind. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it just absolutely floors me. What you need to do is admit that you can't. See, if the Bible's written by the Holy Spirit, then it's going to give you principles that are impossible to do. Those are where we're going. That is the direction we are going, you know? So you have to come to God honestly. See, what people, people are gonna take, look at it two ways. They're either gonna say, that's right. If we don't love our neighbor, then I'm not in the kingdom of God. So I'm gonna really believe that I'm always loving my neighbor. <laughs> Does that make sense? And then they're gonna live in an illusion that they're really loving their neighbor. That's not what Jesus is asking us to do. John's telling us that love is, is vital. Loving, knowing Christ is all about love. And that's an important, that is the vital thing to know. And, but Jesus also said, you know, you pray, Father, forgive me my sins and help me forgive those who sin against me. Meaning Jesus knows that you're going you're gonna to have a rough time with this thing. You know, this isn't going to be the simplest task in the world for you, dying just as it wasn't easy for him to die either. He sweated as it was great drops of blood. It's probably not going to be easy for us too. You know, walking humbly is, man, super tough. Yeah, so, you know, when we think about, like, where God is leading us and where <laughs> God is, is pulling us, yeah, that's the beautiful thing that we could always remember. So when we become discouraged, we become frustrated and angry at God, for not delivering us from temptation. It's a, it's a revelation of our selfishness and our pride, right? In other words, someone put it to me this way once, and it, it always stuck with me. They said, you don't want to become holy. You want to be strong. And I, list, I listened to that. I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, that's the truth. When I complain so much about temptation, my goal, my frustration is not that I'm not becoming more like Christ. My frustration is that I'm not strong enough to live an independent life of holiness in myself. That's the frustration, right? Where that was never the goal of God in the first place, right? The goal of God was never to produce in us a strength 
to make us powerful enough to stand on our own two feet. It was to produce a humility to recognize, as Bo said, that we can't stand on our own two feet. God humbled us. God needs to humble us so that we become reliant upon him and dependent upon him, that we cling to him. And don't you ever find that so true in your life? Like, I want to be free of porn. Why? Because I, I want to be strong. I want to be, you know, I want, I want to have that strength. You know, I want to be able to say, I want to be that person on the internet who says, I haven't watched pornography in 15 years and I get, you know, a lie detector test all the time to show that I'm free. You know, we want to be that guy, you know, to be able to, not knowing that he's sinning in so many other areas, but he doesn't realize it. He really thinks he's jamming, you know, but he doesn't understand his arrogance his pride his boasting all the things that Jesus looked at and just went you missed it you know because we want to be seen as strong and when we when we get when we do good quote good we want to parade it we want to show it off it does something in us not good but it does something in us so it's really like I said, we're gross, man. <laughs> we, need, we need the Lord. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of grossness to us. So, you know, what I think of this person, when I come back to Ezekiel, the Lord doesn't see us. He has deserted our land. I, I think of just that priest who's, um, you know, not thinking, uh, you know, he's just, he's totally checked out as far as the Lord being near us and the Lord wanting to move us in holiness and the Lord wanting to do a work. And uh, I would have loved for the priest to be like, you know what? The Lord does see me when I do this. You know, the Lord does see this. He's right here. He knows everything we're doing. And I'm bummed by that. I'm bummed at what I do. I'm bummed that my flesh wants to do this. You know, I don't want to do it, but I'm bummed my flesh wants to do this. And Lord, you need, you need to do a work in me, you know, uh, you know, show me your mercy, you know, that sounds more like King David, right? That kind of attitude, right? So I don't think David did too much different than probably the priest, you know, as far as their lives and their sexual conduct. I mean, it's all pretty rough, you know, but, um, but here you have someone who just will not say that. He just will not just come and just say, yeah, I like it. I don't want to like it, but I do, you know. And sometimes, you know, in all the psychology of porn viewing and things like that that's on the Internet, uh, I was watching one guy saying you can't find freedom until you, get f- until you realize the reason why you watch porn. And if, I'm going to tell you the five reasons why. And he, didn't, he left out the main one because you like it didn't even mention that the reason why maybe people view porn is because maybe the 15 billion people that are going to the website maybe they just enjoy it you know uh, there was a psychologist a while back who did he didn't say that by the way on yeah <laughs> he, he should have he should have mentioned that he should have said that one yeah. you know like you know but uh, he was talking about the nature of evil, and uh, he talked about, he, he broke down evil, why people do evil things, and he broke it into a couple different categories. And he said the number one reason why people commit evil is an ends justifies the means type of evil, meaning that you're trying to get something good 
but you're utilizing unsavory means to get it. Does that make sense? So it's not like there's a maliciousness. He says there are very few people who are truly malicious, who really enjoy the evil part of sin, you know, that or of evil, where they're like, I like the idea that people are being objectified and destroyed. Like I let, like there's very few people if I'm sure they're out there, but there's very few people who are like, man, I'm glad that that actress's life is miserable, you know, and this, that's what's so good about it for me. Majority of us, we're not thinking those directions. There's an end that we're getting. There is something in it that's good, but we're utilizing negative means in order to get that good. Does that make sense? That's what makes it evil. And the pleasure part of it, right? So the unfortunate thing with a lot of Christians is because they don't understand that it's an ends justifies the means type of an evil. They lump it into the same category. And this is what I mean by that. They categorize the entirety of it as evil. And therefore, they lump you into the category of malicious evil. Do you guys understand that? So to say, like, you must, like, what do you like about it? Do you like the idea that it, it's destructive and that Satan's just loving this? And it, you know what I mean? And they make it seem like you are, like, this maliciously evil type of a person, and you must be getting off to everything evil that's associated with this organization. Does that make sense? And that's a negative way to think because it's not true. And that also, when you do that, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater and the fact that you're ignoring the idea that there are positives to this type of behavior. And this is what I mean by that. Sex in and of itself is a positive. You guys understand that? Beauty is a positive. Attraction is a positive. These are positive things that God has put into the universe. He's put into the creation. Now we're utilizing those goods in, like I said, an unsavory means. We're warping them and we're twisting them in our selfishness. But it doesn't make those things evil. It just means that the way that we're going about it is evil. You guys understand that? Does that make sense? If you don't understand that, especially when you communicate to, and I've always said this to different pastors and ministries that I've, I've been with. You know, me and Bo have been on boards before. We've been dealing with other ministries, and we've always been very cautious because everyone's like, man, you guys are the porn guys. Let's talk about how evil porn is. And we're, and we're like, yeah, like porn sucks, but you need to explain to people what about it sucks. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're communicating a negative worldview and you're painting the entirety of sex in that negativity. Does that make sense? And so what people are getting out of it is Christianity has a negative view of sex. And that's why people are coming away from religion and Christianity thinking that Christianity is like negative to sex. We don't actually think that sexual pleasure is good. You just need to, it's only for procreation, you know, things like that. These negative ideals of Christians come from that perspective. Also, why a lot of people like me leave the church because we, we like sex, right? I liked sex, and I thought that Christianity really had a negative view of it. I was like, I don't know if I want to be a Christian if that's the Christian view of sex. Does that make sense? So we need to be careful. So it's good for me to look at it and be like, what do I like about this? Right? What is good? What is the good that I'm seeking, but I'm seeking it with negative means? So understand what's the evil means that you're using. What is evil about porn? We'll talk more about this next week, by the way, because yeah, we get into it. Uh, 
in the next questions, right? What is the evil of porn and what is the good of porn, right? What are the positive parts of it? And that sounds weird. <laughs> like Christians wouldn't like that I use that language. But there are, like I said, there are positive aspects to porn. It's been twisted. It's been warped. But there's positivity to it. And that's a diff another difficult thing to communicate to someone when you're talking about your desires, especially if it's your wife, to, to admit the idea of, like, I do like porn. There's a part of me that likes it, right? And to be able to explain what about it you like and why it's evil and why you're moving away from it, right? That's a difficult thing because the question will inevitably be asked of if you like it so much, right? How do I know you're a changed man? Right? Do you still like it? Right? Are you going to go back to it? Do you like it more than me? Do you like it more than our marriage? Right? Where it becomes a comparison type of a language. Right? So it's important to understand these things. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at runninglight or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries. Psalm 36, 8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.